Welcome back to the Falkirk Podcast. After a short break, we return with the club flying high in League One just before Christmas. But in this one's show, we're going to be taking a look back to the past with the club approaching its 150th anniversary. Plus, it's now 20 years since we've departed Broville. So joining me from the Falkirk Football Heritage Trust is Michael White and Alan Brown. They're going to talk us through some of the stories about how the club formed and some interesting facts about its journey to where it is now. And they're going to be talking about their new book, Volume 1 of 2, which tells you the, the entire history of the club, from newspaper documents, from memorabilia, from minutes, from records that they've managed to source and preserve. It's an interesting discussion, and we'll start by letting the guys introduce themselves. I'm uh, Michael White, and for the last uh, few years or so, I've been the club's historian and to try and make sure that we've got good records of the club's achievements and that led to us setting up a thing that we've called the Falkirk Football Heritage Trust so that future generations can use this and especially younger people can get to know about the social and economic history behind the club as well. I'm Alan Brown. My involvement with the club basically started as a supporter, obviously, many years ago. But more recently, I was involved with an exhibition at Calder House in 2018 uh, called The Fans View, which was just a, a potted history of the club through the ages, from formation back at the turn of the last century right through to Alec Ferguson uh, and so on in the, the 70s and 80s. And from there, uh, we got involved with Michael. And we both decided it would be a good idea to sort of formalise our interest so we set up the uh, Falkirk Football Heritage Trust in 2020, uh, basically to try and ensure that all the heritage and memorabilia relating to the club was identified. The plan was to collect as much information about the club as possible and where possible to digitise it so that it was available to a lot more fans than would normally see it. Uh, One of the first things we were involved with was the digitisation project. This was the Falkirk uh, official minute books from 1917, which were held at Brockville, uh, discovered when Brockville was demolished, rescued by Michael, uh, and held in storage for the last 20 years or so. Uh, But due to the fact that they were paper-based, they were getting to a stage where they were beginning to rot and there was a, a good possibility that uh, at some point in the next couple of years, they'd be at a stage where they would just have to be thrown out. So we launched an appeal for fans to uh, assist with the, the digitisation. Uh, we got a good response to that, and I think we've had something like 14 people uh, over the last two years uh, helping us with the transcribing of the minute books and then publishing it on our website. There were 12 volumes, and I think currently we're at volume 6, uh, and we're hoping that we complete that project by the club's 150th anniversary season. So we've got another couple of years to go, but at the moment we're on target for that. Were the minute books just like club records, uh, results? and? Yeah, back in the day, the directors would meet weekly on a Tuesday evening, uh, initially at the Royal Hotel in Falkirk, not at uh, Brockville itself, and there would be a formal minute recorded of the proceedings. So... Uh, any finance issues with the bank, uh, players who were interested in signing for the club, players who were injured. Uh, the directors would also choose the team. That seemed to continue right through to the 1950s. So the directors on a Tuesday night would select the 11 players for the following Saturday. Uh, so these minute books were kept uh, in Brockville. And I think at one point they were put in a cupboard, but it was then bricked over. There was a wall built in front of the cupboard and nobody knew that the minute books were actually there. So there was approximately 70 years worth of minute books uh, which were discovered when the bulldozers moved in and they ended up in a skip. And I think Michael got a phone call one night to say, you might want to come down to the the club. There's a lot of paperwork floating around. Uh, So Michael had rushed down, rescued them and then they were put in storage. Uh, Basically just left. Uh, But it got to a point whereby the the paper was beginning to get damp and deteriorate. Uh, and we knew that if we didn't do something, you know, it'd be too late. So luckily we spoke to uh, Falkirk Museum staff and they managed to secure a grant to have the books preserved. So they were sent away 
uh, basically stripped back to the, the bare pages. All the binders and so on was taken off and they were put in deep freeze for two weeks. Uh, there was lots of bugs and whatnot in them, uh, which came out when they came into the warmer, warmer atmosphere. So they were then frozen for two weeks, came back to Calendar House, and they are viewable. The original books are viewable in Calendar House. The only issue is you have to phone up, make an appointment, uh, go in and see them. They have to bring the books out in front of you and so on. And it restricts access. So one of the ideas of the digitisation project was to transcribe all the minutes, put them into PDFs, Word documents, put them on a website. And that meant anybody, any Falkirk fan anywhere in the world could access them. Not only Falkirk fans, there's great social history in there as well as football history. There's an interest to, to a lot of people. So when did both of your associations with the club start? Was it as fans, as kids growing up? Is that how you, you first got involved with the club? Uh, I started going. My grandfather took me in the sort of early 1950s and always had a, a big interest in it. And I liked history anyway. And the, the main uh, spurt to do the kind of formal historian stuff was we lived down in England for a while and it's, it always happens, I think, when you're exiled, you get more of a pull towards where you came from. So I started collecting um, reports and everything to do with Falkirk Football Club. Then we moved back to Scotland. Um, I started writing articles for the programme and from there I started writing books about Falkirk Football Club. So, uh, yeah, that's about 70-odd years of having a very big soft spot for Falkirk Football Club. <laughs> and uh, Alan, were you the same, just a fan growing up? I was a fan growing up. I mean, I was from up the breeze, and it was a lot of the old firm supporters up there. So really, yeah. you kept a low profile uh, <laughs> on many occasions as a Falkirk supporter. But funnily enough, I supported Falkirk for about three years before I actually saw them play. Because I used to come down into Falkirk with my pal, uh, walk along the high street, go into the record shops, go to Moscow Dean's for a bag of chips. Uh, and we'd walk down to, we found out that if you went down to Brockville at 20 past four on a Saturday, the groundsmen would open up the metal doors at the Hope Street end. And then we, we thought that's a brilliant way of getting in for free. Obviously, we only saw 20 minutes of the match, but that was what we did for the first season or so. And then as we got a bit more affluent, and the pocket money grew, we could afford to pay at the gate. But going down and standing at the gate, there was always this anticipation because when the gates were slid open, if nobody came out, you knew Falkirk were playing really well and it was a great match. There were a few occasions where the gates opened and the, the ground <laughs> literally emptied. Yeah. And you knew where you went in knowing it was going to be 3-0, 4-0 or whatever. So that was an introduction to Falkirk. And when once I started to watch them and that was it, you know. They were still doing that when I was going because there was a few times me and my dad went to a K1 Juniors game, left there half-time and got the right. last 20 minutes. Yeah. So. It was funny because it was always, you could see some of the faces that gathered outside and there was, there was old OEPs and there was young folk. Uh, husbands obviously had left their wife shopping in Falkirk and just sort of wandered out of football. So uh, it was a thing right up until... Uh... Yeah, so it's now what, 20 years since we left Brockville this year. And then we moved, I think, a year later to the new stadium. So I guess there's, with that anniversary and the 150th anniversary of the club coming up, it's important for you guys to to get all of this memorabilia and history of the club documented. And you've just produced, the, I think, the first volume yeah. of the history of the club, yeah. um, which is available, I think, to order the second batch now. The first batch is coming. So do you want to just tell the fans about that project yeah, and the work they, that you've had to put in there? The, the aim of, of that was to, to mark the 150th anniversary with a special presentation box. And this box would contain three books, um, Volume 1, which is out this week, Volume 2, which will be printed to coincide with the 150th anniversary, and a statistical book which will cover every game that Falkirk's ever played, and they'll be in this presentation box, and that will come out to coincide with the big anniversary. And it's not just a, an amalgamation of the books that have already been written, there's a lot of new stuff in it, because we know more about the club now than we did when the first book was done in 1990. And of course the internet has just opened up access beyond belief. So um, I, we've sold out the first run of volume one and there'll be a reprint in January. So if anybody has not managed to secure a copy this time round, you can get your orders in for January. And uh, I think it'll be something 
worth getting and it'll be a souvenir to remember where uh, where can people get a hold of that or the next one the the next one if you order the next one that'll be sold through the club shop the the present one volume one is being done by the trust itself and they're available from behind the wall and a brockville bar in the kevin McAllister stand this week and there's a there's a waiting list so i think volume the second print of this will sell pretty quickly as well and i'm sure that when it comes to actual 150th there'll be people who want to go back and get the first one. So we may do another run then. How many people are involved with the trust and what was the process of pulling together such a you know, such a big book? You're covering the full history of the club. There's obviously a lot of information you've got to collate and filter through and write. What's the process been oh, like for that? That That's where uh, the, the scrapbooks came in handy. The scrapbooks that I've kept meant looking up anything from 1969 quite easy because you had all these and then games that you'd been at but the early stuff you had to go back relying on newspapers and the, the other thing that became quickly apparent was that what was in the newspapers wasn't always correct and I can remember being in the press box at Brockville for example on attendances the, one of the press reporters would just say how many is here today and they'd look round and say 5,000, 3,000 they were all guesses and it's the same when, when a goal was scored, they would all turn to each other and say, who scored that goal? Oh, it was Alan Brown. Right, thanks. So everybody writes down Alan Brown, and it might have been you that scored the goal. But for history, it was Alan Brown. So there's a lot of stuff in the early years that needed a lot of digging and getting two people to verify the, the sources. But uh, it was a labour of love. I can't say I didn't enjoy doing it. <laughs> Yeah, quite satisfying as well uh, to produce something like that. And then also the club recently released the Heritage shirt. We've had the rename in the south stand to the Kevin McCall stand. We've had the Legends wall on the, on the north stand. Seeing the club embracing its history and the work that you guys have put in to produce this book, it must be quite rewarding to see all of that. Yeah, it's long overdue. I think when we moved down here, we kind of hoped that this would be named New Brockville. And very early on it became apparent that the club didn't own the stadium and didn't have the, the freedom to go around and theme the lounges. So the work that Alan's done over the last couple of years has been phenomenal because you always felt a wee bit embarrassed that this was Falkirk Football Club's home and there wasn't really anything about the club on the walls apart from the Heritage Trail, mm. which was just done really for the opening of the stadium. So what's happening now, in my, in my opinion, is long, long overdue. Yeah, I think when uh, we were asked to look, we had a, a discussion with Jamie about oh, a year ago, 18 months ago, about refurbishing the, the hospitality lounges. Now, I had never been in the hospitality lounges up to that point, and we thought, well, the first one we could do is Alec Parker Lounge. And it was taken up and shown, and on the, the corridor outside the Alec Parker Lounge is a, a picture of Alec Parker. Great. You open the door and go into the lounge, and there was not one single thing in the lounge related to Alec Parker. And it was like, oh... So that was a first, you know, uh, our stab at putting up uh, panels and so on. So we ended up, it was quite easy to break Alec Parker's career and life down into six segments. And it just so happened we had six panels and they fitted perfectly on, on the walls. So that was quite a big learning curve. But I think, you know, the, the feedback we've had from the Alec Parker Lounge is that it's been done very well and people are, are happy, more than happy with it. So that gave us the confidence to go on to the next lounge, which was the uh, Captain's Lounge. Captain's Lounge was slightly different in as much as it was smaller, but obviously over the, the, the years we've had probably 100 captains. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, you know, how do you choose two captains at 100 or one captain at 100? So we decided to go down the route of having a modern, a more modern captain and an older captain. And we would have these on panels on the wall for a year, 18 months, and then we could just refurbish them by putting in new candidates, yeah. new captains. So we went in the Captain's Lounge with a Darren Barr, celebrate a relatively recent uh, captain, and John Markey, who was the, what, a stall of the 60s and into the 70s. And I think by many, before my time, considered to be one of the greatest players that's played for Falkirk. Uh, so we did the refurbishment of the, the, the cap captain's lounge. And we then had the international lounge, which was a problem, because there were a lot less uh, candidates for the international lounge. But we did have a shirt worn by, an international shirt worn by Vic McKinney, 
who played for Falkirk in the mid sixties. He was one of two, three Irish players that came over uh, to play for Falkirk. International shirt he had worn for Northern Ireland against West Germany in nineteen sixty six had been donated to the club by his his, widow. his wife his widow. He had played uh, against West Germany in nineteen sixty six, and it was the West Germany team who were warming up for that year's World Cup. So they did a little mini tour prior to the tournament starting. Didn't they warm up well <laughs> enough? <laughs> and he played in that game. I think George Best was injured and he may have taken George Best's place. Uh, but again, when you get into the heritage and the history of the club, the real story or the, the, the standout item for me in, in his career. He moved over to South Africa to play football in the twilight of his career. Uh, but tragically, he was... Uh, killed in a car crash at the age of 42, 43, I think, very young. And his son was in the car with him at the time. Uh, he was also badly injured, paralysed. Uh, so there was a, you know, a sort of story that you didn't know until you started doing the investigation. And apparently his son became a world-renowned uh, mouth-painting artist. And there is a picture of him. He's commissioned by Manchester United and a lot of the big clubs to actually paint team... Uh, so we incorporated some of that into the panel as best we could. Obviously, you're limited uh, to what uh, space you have and the number of words that you can uh, But that finished off the international lounge. And again, that will be up for a year, two years, and then we can move to the next uh, uh, international player. And then the last lounge that we looked at was the 57 lounge, which celebrates the 1957 Scottish Cup. And we were sort of... Well, an abundance of material for that one. It was so, you know, it was so well documented at the time. You didn't need a lot of research, uh, but there was a lot of things going on in the background. And Michael had uh, things like the nineteen fifty seven Scottish Cup football, uh, that ball that we see here in that image. Uh, you actually have that. That's amazing. Well, this is the thing. You know, it, Michael brought it down to Calder House. Uh, the exhibition, just, it was prior to the exhibition just to see what we could display and the minute he brought it out of the bag everybody wanted to touch it yeah. wanted to hold it, wanted to get their picture taken with it, you know, and it was just it was tangible, it was something you were connecting with the 57 team uh, so Michael had other things, you know, Reg Smith's blazer badge from the cup final there's a lot of things like that that we've got in storage currently that we can't show. So the 57 lounge sort of took care of itself. It was a much, much bigger panel. It was the, the, the largest panel we've created. But again, I think it, it worked out really well. So we've, we've completed the refurbishment of the, the hospitality lounges as far as we can at the moment. And the next thing would be look at the, the, the heritage trail on the ground floor. As, as I'm assuming that's where, when you come in the main door of the stadium that takes you through the change rooms. That's right. I've done the stadium tour a few times and it is quite interesting, even the photographs on the wall now, seeing the history of the club, seeing different players, players you've heard about, recognise. Yes. And I guess, is that kind of your guys' aim, is to just have that available in and around the stadium so that if anyone wants to come, they, they can come and learn about the club. Yeah, certainly. I mean, at the moment, uh, people who book hospitality can tick an option to say they want to do the, the Heritage Trail. Yeah. Uh, and so at 12 o'clock on a Saturday, they'll come in and we'll, we'll take them around. But the only issue we have is that the Heritage Trail, when it was put up back when the stadium was opened in 2004, there's no text accompanying the images. So basically, unless you know what an image is showing you, you need someone there to tell you, yeah. you know, what it's about, what the background is, what the importance of the picture is. Uh, so the plan is that we'll introduce panels on the, the Heritage Trail, but with text, accompanying text. So basically, you could go around the trail yourself uh, if you so wanted. And obviously, in the, in the long ter longer term of the club, we'll be talking to them about maybe having a midweek Heritage Trail tour that people could just turn up and yeah. we'd take them round. Uh, so they don't have to you know, come to hospitality on a Saturday match day to, to see the trail. Yeah, I think uh, the other thing is to make a lot of this stuff um, online, available online. So if you're out in Canada or Australia and exiled Bairn, you could actually virtually go through the heritage. When we first talked about this, we talked about a museum, but I think the idea of a, a fixed museum with exhibits is kind of gone and more and more people are looking into interactive stuff or stuff that you can access. And we've looked at various other clubs, what they've done. Some of them are pretty good. A lot of the stuff is on, on wheels, so you can go into a club like Hearts and you can see what is almost a football museum, 
then you could go in the following Wednesday to a wedding and there's no sign of anything to do with football. It's all carefully mm, put away. So down, that yeah. kind of idea and incorporating into a kind of learning centre where people can come in and do their own research about maybe their own family, because everybody's always convinced great uncle Willie played for Falkirk back in 1920, <laughs> or, or youngsters at the schools can, can do that. And people who, I think football history now is taken seriously. When, when I was a, a kid, it was it would been just seen as a joke. History was kings and queens and battles and wars. But now um, a lot of the big clubs are realising that their history and their heritage is important and is, is a money spinner that people go to a city, well, like Barcelona, and they all want to go to the Yeah. So there's no reason why Falkirk couldn't do that. And Falkirk's history, um, not in, just in terms of games and matches and players, but the kind of social context is fascinating. I mean, wh one of the things I've always been intrigued by is that the, the huge uh, peaks of Falkirk Football Club coincide when Falkirk was a, a massive industrial centre with the iron foundries. And the two wars kind of interrupted Falkirk's rise. Falkirk could well have been, maybe not up with Rangers and Celtic, but certainly third best team in Scotland had it not been for the, the devastation of the two wars. So that, that's a, an aspect of it that's quite interesting too. And then if you look at the, the pictures or you go to games now, you know, the things people wore, I mean, that picture on the wall that we're in just now, all the men there have got a collar and tie on. When did you last mm. wear a tie? <laughs> mm, long time ago. And then, surprisingly, for 1957, in that picture, there's quite a few women. And the, the, the notion, Brockville, the early pictures we've got, it's like the film I, Robot. Everybody is in a bonnet, a white scarf and a collar and tie. So that, that aspect of the club's history is, is fascinating. And when you get things like Falkirk being the very first floodlight televised live game in the world... It's just unbelievable. The Newcastle yeah. was that one, yeah. yeah. But then, if you if you research that, you go into if you go back through the old news archive, it, it took six months of argument with the SFA to get them to agree to broadcast the match, because Falkirk had been approached by Newcastle, I think in the early spring, uh, to to have a friendly match, and then obviously the discussion developed. Let's get it televised, but the SFA weren't for it at all. Uh, and initially, folk could say, "Well, can you sh we show the whole match televised?" No, you can't do that. It's going to impact attention. You know, they obviously had concerns, which forty, fifty years later we're still talking about. But they had concerns that it was going to impact attendances. Yeah, so shed. initially, the SFA said, "No, not happening." So folk had to appeal, and one of the directors had to go through to the SFA offices and make an impassioned plea that the game go ahead. So as a compromise, they said. OK, you can have the second half live, but you can't have the first half. So we have our radio times from October 19th. October 53. And then if you open it up, you know, is it a Tuesday night? I think it was a month. Was it a month? Yeah, Tuesday. It was a midweek, so you open it up, and then there at 8 o'clock, 8 p.m., Association Football from Brockwolf Park, Falkirk, Falkirk versus Newcastle. Commentator Ken. Yeah, of the they think it's, it's all, all over. over. <laughs> it is now, and that, that's a fascinating picture we've got of that game because they've put obviously like almost like deck chairs in front of the old enclosure at Brockville, and the place is absolutely jam packed. And I think Newcastle at the time were the English Cup holders, and we've got all the receipts for the travel, the hotel bills, the meals, and that that part of it Indeed. is fascinating. Yeah. 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 And of course, the, the bonus is that at eight o'clock, on of course in these days there was only two channels. Yeah. At eight o'clock, BBC said we're There's now going to, going to Brockwell Park Falkirk, and then it just switched on. Uh, referee blew the whistle. Go. One minute later, thirty yards short from Alec McRae. Alec McRae yeah. back of the net. You know, so what an introduction. The Falkirk producers the must have thought, "Well, oh, there's mileage in this. <laughs> yeah. This could be a this could be a, a money spinner." Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing, when you see these old games, especially the night games, there's sparks everywhere as guys were lighting cigarettes or pipes. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? Yeah, yeah. But that was a fantastic season. I mean, for me, 1953, uh, we had floodlights introduced at Brockville. Uh, the board made the decision in December 52 to go ahead and get them installed. 
and they employed a company from Dunfermline, hmm. electrical engineers, hmm. to come through. And then they worked through Christmas, New Year. They had a, a sort of trial match, I think, just with the players. Yeah. And then obviously the, the floodlights had to be adjusted to make sure that, you know, the park was evenly... You know, uh, and they invited Carlisle United. Yeah, they, they played a lot that. of English teams yeah. in that. So they invited Carlisle United up in the March to open the floodlights, then we reciprocated. We went into Carlisle two weeks later, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then later that year, uh, the televised match against Newcastle. Yeah. And in between, they did the they toured uh, Malta and Israel in 1953. Eight-match tour, only 15 players over four weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, And that, again, is another, another story. When you're looking back through the history to, to write book and collect all these things, you must come across some unusual stories and unusual... What, what's some of the, the, the strangest things or the most surprising things? Right. You've, like that tour, it's pretty surprising that Falkirk would do that in the 50s. But well, that's, that's the thing, that. again, I, but then it links in with the digitisation, the minutes, because in the minutes, you can see the approach coming in via letter from Mr Otto Seaman, the uh, Maltese consulate yeah. ambassador in London, yeah. just out the blue, and then it develops over three or four months. And then before you know it, they're away over to Malta uh, and then on to Israel. Yeah, there's one one really surprising one is um, where they, they reference that they're going to go on a tour to Africa in the in the seventies, and a guy on the board who was an absolutely brilliant guy. Dr. Gillis Sinclair, he was a, a medical doctor. So the um, the directors went and spent money buying special ties to go to Africa. It was a white tie with the Falkirk logo in the middle. And they were all getting hyped up for this trip to Africa because I don't think a Scottish team had ever been to Africa. And it wasn't South Africa. It wasn't like one of the ex-British colonies. It was one in Central Africa. So Dr. Sinclair had come back at the next board meeting and he'd said, well, if we're going to wherever it is, we'll need this injection, this injection, this injection. And you could see, you can imagine the directors <laughs> seeing this bill mounting up oh, for yeah. injections. So they decided to scrub the tour to Africa. But the tie's there. We've got, we've got, we've got that tie. tie. Yeah. We've got one of the ties. How you managed to get that tie, I don't know. The, t- <laughs> the tour that never was. So... Let me just go back to the start of the club. How did the club get founded? Oh, that's a really interesting story. What what you have to remember is in in those days, football was a very new game. And what they had as football was basically rugby. And that's why today West of Scotland will never call themselves West of Scotland Rugby Club. It's West of Scotland Football Club. So when the two games started to split, there was an exhibition game played in Falkirk between two Glasgow teams. And that's the first record we've got of football being played, roughly on a park where Maggie Woods Lone is now. And then there was, it was really impressive, and people who'd seen it, they decided to hold a meeting in a pub called the Market Inn, not New Market, the Market Inn, to see if there was enough interest in forming gentlemen of Falkirk for forming a football club. So they had that meeting and there was enough interest and that's when the football club was started. But they weren't in the league, they weren't in the Scottish League till the turn of the century, till 1902. But they were in various local leagues. But that, that's how it started, as an exhibition game um, of guys from Glasgow and one of them called themselves Bairns. And that's where it came from. That's where it came from. Yeah. Well, no, the Bairns thing the comes Bairns from the, the saying. Yeah, yeah. They, they they decided to call themselves Bairns, but they had nothing to do with Falkirk at yeah. all. When did the game sort of become professionalised up here? Oh, right. That that's an interesting question because um, the the English leagues were developing, and they could see that what was going on in Scotland was quite different from their game. The game in England, football, was still kind of public schoolboys thing and it was like rugby where you were considered un, unmanly if you passed the ball. It was your job to keep going till you were brought down. And I don't know why, but in Scotland they started this idea of passing the ball from one player to another. And the English people at the time referred to them as the Scotch professors. 
and clubs like Preston and clubs in the north of England were desperate to have this style of football and they paid they paid Scottish guys to go down and play and that was the start of professionalism but it was a long time before Scottish clubs started paying players so all the guys in the early days and you can see it in the minutes they all had day jobs and they all lived fairly locally the the notion I mean, the notion of players coming to play for Falkirk from all parts of the world was just unbelievable. You never had dreamt of that back when it started. And of course, mm. is one of the other things we've got in the Heritage Trust is a lot of the old minute books referring to how much transfers were and how much players were paid and uh, an absolute pittance. The guys watching the game on the terracing we'd probably be earning the same as the guys playing, whereas now it's yeah. massively. The only actually concrete one I can remember, there was an, a lovely old guy in one of our memories groups, and he was from Falkirk, he was from Camlin, but he played for Celtic, and he played for Scotland against England at Wembley in 1942, and he got two pounds. <laughs> So that that just brings it into yeah. perspective. So it was a working class sport. Working for many class, years. and the idea of corporate hospitality and all these guys in the suits coming in and sponsoring this and sponsoring that—never in a million years. So, what were the early years of the club like? When did Brockville come about, and how how did all that kind of get set up? Well, it just took time. It just folk had played in local leagues, and then. It was quite clear that the only way forward to develop was to join the leagues, and uh, it just it was a natural evolution, I suppose. And was that the time where, before they joined the league, they thought it'd be a stronger case if they managed to merge with East Stirling? That was a to present a, a, a single team from Falkirk. A board decision to merge with East Stirling, <clears throat> so the two boards met, and it was a split vote, and it went to the casting vote of the Shire chairman not to merge with Falkirk. But they could see then what the potential in the Falkirk area was for a professional football team. But very, very, um, one of the most amazing things we've got in the Trust is a copy uh, of a court case between Falkirk and the Shire where uh, the Shire were suing Falkirk because they reckoned they'd signed one of their players while he was under the influence <laughs> of drink. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all in beautiful parchment script and copper plate writing, and you have to read it to believe it. <laughs> you can you can picture it on a Saturday night. You know, do you want to sign for Falkirk? <laughs> and somebody <laughs> producing a piece of paper, and the guy signs it, and then the Shire going ballistic when they discover it. And I think it went to court, and oh, it, right. it was found in the Shire's favour. Yeah. Was that right? And, and Falkirk had to play them in yeah. a. A game and all the gate receipts had to go yeah. to the Shire. My own personal favourites are the war years because for years and years and years um, you read the books of football and it stops in 1939 and starts again in 1945. You think that nothing happened in between. And when we did the research we found that it was full league programmes and Falkirk ran two teams every Saturday. And some of the stories from the war years are absolutely phenomenal. One game they go and play a team, the kind of second team go and play in the North East League and they're a man short, so the manager plays. <laughs> but he's got no boots with him, so if somebody gives him a pair of boots, two sizes too small, and he spends the rest of the, the month with damaged feet having <laughs> played in this game. And the other one in the war, in the minutes again, um, everybody expected the Second World War was going to be a war fought out in the air with bombs and aircraft. And Brockville was uh, designated to be a mortuary to hide dead bodies from all the air raids. You think, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And it's, as I said to you earlier, it's not, it's not all just about the goals and the players. It's the wee stories that go with it. And the dogs and dog track around Brockville. Yeah. Can you imagine how tight Brockville was and a dog track around there? And that was before they built the Greyhound Stadium. Mm. This was the 1930s, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, if you look at the minute books for about three years, I would say Brockville, it was a Greyhound Stadium with a football club attached. Because <laughs> the minutes seemed to be nothing but... And it would name all the individual dogs. 
Yeah. We've we've mm-hmm. purchased twelve dogs this week. You know, <laughs> Charing Cross Lady. You know, and so on and so on and so on. And then the trainer, the the greyhound trainer, would report that two of the dogs were lame. So it was agreed that they could be put down and sold for, you know, dog meat. But uh, but then you found yeah, stadium, stadium right opposite, basically. The retail Graham's park is, yeah. yeah. So there's a bit of to and fro in there, and I think they were both trying to buy each other out. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, after two or three seasons, I think the club were making so many losses that they decided to cut their cloth. Yeah. I suppose the, when you're doing this, the, the club's history is the town's history as well. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're not just finding football stories, and as you say, you're finding stuff about the area. And, yeah. and I think back in the day, obviously, there was a lot of local lads played for their local club. Mm. Whereas nowadays, you look at clubs and all the players are you know, from abroad or whatever, but back in the day there was a good... In fact, we've just come across, in the last week or so, I came across a team sheet, 1970 team sheet, but this team sheet has got all the Falkirk players listed, but also all their addresses. Mm-hmm. And there's two or three, Carden Shore, Camlin, mm. so there's, there's, you know... And the club owned the club owned houses in the town, and when they did sign a player from outside the district, they would put them up in one of the club houses. I think from memory, about half a dozen or so. Because yeah. Jimmy Delaney, when he signed yeah. uh, for Falkirk in 54-53, uh, he was put up in a house in Grangemouth, uh, Dalgrain Road, I think, uh, they said. The other, the other story that may be worth telling, Michael, it always makes me laugh, is the one about uh, Tommy Younger and his goalkeepers that season. Yeah, that, that was an amazing season. They'd been relegated... And uh, Bert Slater had gone to Liverpool, so Tommy Younger was an ex-Scotland Liverpool Hibs, was the manager, and there were 13 different goalies in one season. <laughs> some of them might have been the same guy under another name, but there were 13 different... Some were Newman Junior trialists, Younger himself played, and then there was others like Rennie, Renucci, and... How could you have 13 different goals? Especially when your manager was a goalkeeper himself. <laughs> he also had high opinions at the only meeting. Yeah. But my favourite Brockville story was nothing to do with players or matches. It was a New Year's Day game where Falkirk were playing and they always had a pipe band before the game and at halftime and started off. And I think it was the Camlin pipe band and it was obvious from, I was just a wee boy, it was obvious from the start when he came out that the guy on the big bass drum was absolutely out of the game, hungover. <laughs> so they walked up towards the Hope Street end and the band turned and the guy missed the turn and he was obviously standing there wondering where he was. So his pals, one of his pals came back, turned him round and they went down towards the Watson Street end and he was swaying and missing the drum. And when they got to the Watson Street end, he did the same again. The band turned to come back up the park and his pal just left him hanging over the drum like this. <laughs> and two of the band followers came and carted him away to the stand. And I always remember sitting in the, in the main stand at Bravo with my grandfather and all his pals and the tears were streaming down. Their, they'd never seen anything as funny as this. I'd love to... Somebody had got a picture of that because, to me, it just summed up the time, the era, and what football was all about. Plus the fact that New Year's Day, when Falkirk scored the first goal of the new year, out came the hip flasks mm. and everybody everybody had a, a drink of whiskey. I suppose it was a much less formal game back then. and So there's a lot of fans, I'm 30, so I can remember Brockville, but it's 20 years since we left, there's a lot of fans at the ground now who have never experienced it. So what was especially as a youngster and then going up with Brockville, what was that like? Oh, it was a magical place because Saturday, it's kind of like Alan described as Saturday, you'd go up in the steam train, you'd go to Bishop's Woolworths where everything mm. was sixpence, you'd go down to the entrance to the game, uh, threepence for a programme, uh, sixpence for a pie, sixpence for a bovril, and the smell of the tobacco from the men and the liniment coming out of the dressing room. It was just a magical place. The referees hated Brockville, and later on in life I met one or two of them, and the SFA used to write to them with a postcard to tell them what game they were doing on the Saturday, 
and the two places they dreaded were Broomfield, the old Airdrie ground, and Brockville, because the crowd were right on you. And there's no... You literally could lean out at Brockville and trip up opposing wingers. <laughs> and uh, I, I just... I know you kind of think about roast-tinted spectacles looking back, but Brockville was a phenomenal place. When it was good, it was brilliant. That night the Hearts game was yeah. one. Tremendous place. Partick Thistle in the Cup in 1991, 4-3 oh, yeah. game was another game where... And you know, it was just yeah. under the floodlights, you know. And where you saw it, how much it meant to the town was the night we thought the club was bust and going out of football. The ground was packed and fair dues to Patrick Thistle, they agreed to bring the game forward. People were outside collecting buckets. Old ladies were coming up and saying, I'm not coming to the game, I don't like football, but my man was always a, an ardent... And we're, we're putting money out of their pensions into this bucket to save the football club. Was this in the 90s? Yeah, it was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I felt, so, not for very long, I felt sorry for Partick Thistle that night because they weren't just playing a football team, they were playing a town. Mm. And there were people there determined to save the club and they backed the Bairns, the original, they were phenomenal. The events they put on, they, they, they took that club from absolutely on the floor and raised it up and then the consortium came in. But without the back the Bairns effort and the effort from the people of Falkirk, Falkirk would have disappeared. No doubt about that. Yeah, we've also got the Falkirk Sports Society now and there's a lot of talk about fan ownership and fan funding. But as you said, that's always happened with Falkirk and there's been times where the fans have had to step in. So yeah. it's it's a common theme. Say, Alba was looking back through old programs and everything, and there's, there's talk 20 years ago about fan share schemes. So, the fans have always stepped up and, and put their money into the club. But that, that was quite an emotional night because uh, that old lady in particular, I'll, I'll never forget that. I mean, she, she must have a pretty tough life on her own, a widow, and she was putting money in to save a football club that she would never go and watch, but. In memory of her late husband, she would do something. Yeah, I mean, you you think about the four thousand people that come every week, but the club affects so many more people than that. I, I mean, if this place wasn't here, it'd be a tragedy. Well, that's where I think the trust has a role to play, beyond the the four or five thousand who come to the games. There's the people at home, people from Falkirk who live elsewhere, people in America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, wherever. They look for Falkirk's result on a Saturday, and that's where I think the trust and the club working together could bring the club to them. Yeah. I mean, we, we can even see it on a very small scale with the book, the number of people who want a copy of the book, and you look at the addresses and think, woof, and it's because it means so much yeah. to them. And I think on our website, we've got a, an admin page that shows you all the hits on all the pages, and it also shows you a map of the world and where the the viewers have come from yeah. and it's virtually you know i could name 26 27 28 countries around the world uh, kazakhstan for some reason seems to be popular uh you know but obviously australia new zealand canada usa most of europe uh, and africa as well so there is you know Falkirk fans are around the world Just back in the club's history well, i'm also looking at a poster up there where i'm seeing people lifting a trophy and We've had, I think, two major Scottish Cups in our yeah. life. We've had, I think, four Challenge Cups. So those two uh, Scottish Cup wins, what were they like for the club in the town back then? You obviously, if you look at the match report, you see the attendance and it's really high. Yeah, 80-odd thousand uh, or whatever. But yeah. what did those kind of mean for the well, town I mean, back then? The 1913 one, I think none of us were there. <laughs> no, no. I, was at the 50, I was at that game, 57, and that was just... They called it the miracle of the Bairns because Falkirk were, in, in the January, they were a stick-on to be relegated. And Reggie Smith comes in from Dundee United and they say to him, your main job is to save us from relegation. So not only did he save them from relegation, they won the Scottish Cup. And the fact that there was none of the old firm in the final, so Falkirk Kilmarnock, you'd be lucky to fill a quarter of Hamden and on the Saturday there was 90,000 and uh, on the Wednesday replay of poor attendance there was only 89,000 <laughs> and that was just unbelievable. Two what they called provincial sides 
and anybody who was there will never forget the night the cup came back to, to Falkirk because kids were pulled out in their pyjamas, coats over it. Everybody headed up to the High Street, to Newmarket Street, to see the cup, people hanging off lampposts, hanging out windows. And even the players found it very emotional because two of them had been in a Scottish Cup final before with Rangers, but with Rangers not having a town, they had never experienced the reaction from the fans. And the bus came in from Camlin and it was just a snail space because of the numbers of people who were who were there to see it. And then they went back to have a celebration dinner at the ice rink. And Alec Parker told <laughs> he was on his national service at the time. So he had to get back to the army barracks for the start of the day, which we I think would have been about half seven. And of course, by that time there was no way we could go to bed. <laughs> and he couldn't drive. So one of the folk guys gave him his car and he drove back from the ice rink to Presswick. And they were on parade and he said the sergeant major was an absolute so-and-so. And he he knew the sergeant major was a big Celtic fan. So as he came along the the, the line, Alec Parker just undid his tunic and said, what do you think of that sergeant major? <laughs> so that's, that's a great story. And our club record was the breaking the world transfer record, which... Yeah. It's also it's a fascinating story, but it's it's something that will never happen in oh, Scotland. No, no, it's never. unique to Falkirk. There will be never, never, never in be. a million zillion years. Will I would say a British club, uh, maybe not, but certainly a Scottish club will never ever do that. Can you just tell the story about how all that came about, came about? Sid Puddyfoot had been stationed in Bridge of Allen during the war, and uh, he was England's current centre forward. He was always trying to get away. And Arsenal and one or two of the other big English clubs wanted to sign him. So the Falkirk directors went down to West Ham with a bag full of money that they'd collected from the supporters and various people in the town. And to try and frighten them away, West Ham said, well, you need to offer 5,000 before we're even interested. And they agreed there and then. And the West Ham directors obviously couldn't retract and say, no, we didn't mean that. So they had to go ahead with it. And they had more than that in their bag of money. And the minutes referred to them coming back up by train. Mm. And you can only imagine that they, they had an interesting train journey back with the cash that they still had in, in the bag. And uh, he was paraded through the town in an open carriage like royalty. And the first game he played was in the Scottish Cup against Bathgate on the Saturday. And typical Falkirk, they lost 1-0 and everything's Bathgate were a non-league team, but they weren't. They were a second division team. But even then, it was a, it was a major upset. And that was Sid Puddyfoot's debut. And Alan's found out how people in Falkirk knew the score. That's right. Well, back in the day, uh, apparently, a lot of the away fans would take pigeons with them to matches. Uh, and at half-time, they would write 1-1 or 1-0, a little bit of paper, put it on the pigeon's leg release the pigeon, and those back in Falkirk would get to know the half-time score maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes after half-time itself, and they would do the same at full-time. So rather than wait two hours for all the fans to find their way back to the pubs in Falkirk, eh, they would already know the scores. It's incredible to think. You've got live score on your phone now. So <laughs> But you, you don't think back then how information got around and even... Or anything. It's, That's right. When you look back at those things, you never you never stop and think, how did they get that all the results back? And well, even in the the, the early minute books in the nineteen twenties, they always travelled by train to yeah. matches. The, the team, there was no team bus as such. So on the the minutes, it would say players to assemble at Falkirk Grahamston at ten forty to catch train to Ayr. Mm. You know, and then we will return on the six o four from Ayr to Falkirk Grahamston. And I think it was the late 20s, early 30s, before the first mention of a team bus. Mm. You know, one of the directors had spoken to a local garage and decided that we could may maybe travel to matches by bus. You know? <laughs> so. Things you take for granted now. Yeah. That's, that's the other great thing about the war years. Sometimes the, the bus got lost because they had to take down all the road signs in case mm. the Germans invaded. And the players would have to come under their own steam and I think there was one classic, Rangers turned up at Brockville with nine players. <laughs>
So I think I've probably taken up a lot of you guys' time, so we'll just start to look towards the end. If anybody wants to get involved with the trust or want to find out more about the club, where can they go? And can are you still look? I'm assuming you're still looking for old or newspapers. Anything, or anything. anything. Uh, the weirder, the older, the better. Uh, you can contact us through our website. We've got a contact form on there uh, that will generate an email to us, and we'll get back to you. Uh, but the other thing we're still looking for is the two missing volumes of the, the minute books. Uh, as I say, unfortunately, one of the missing volumes covers the 1957 Scottish Cup win. Uh, so that's somewhere, maybe a, it was at the bottom of the skip and got you know destroyed, who knows. But if anyone's got anything at the back of the cupboard that think it might be of any interest, please get in touch. And just finish on a wee positive note, what's your best memory as your time's a Falkirk well, it would be easy to say that the the cup win in '57, but he was so young he didn't really appreciate it. I I think that uh, probably that Hearts Cup tie, that first half for 45 minutes, that's the best I've ever felt about Falker. That was really great. I, w- I would say the Scottish Cup tie certainly. The other memory, personal memory for me, I would say would be an away match at. United in the Jim Duffy season Jim Duffy had take, taken over and this was before the Solcoats incident and it all sort of went pear-shaped uh, went down to Ayr and I think it was probably just his second or third game in charge and Derek Williams scored the hat-trick that day left foot, right foot header and he scored his third goal I think the third minute of injury time and I was standing on the terrace and I've just got this image in my head to this day of him coming off the pitch with the ball under his arm and a big broad smile on his face, and you could see he was happy as Larry that he had scored that hat trick. So that was a great memory yeah, that I have. Well, thank you guys for your time, and keep an eye out with the club shop. We'll have the book in January. Um, are eight people able to pre-order it? Or yeah, yeah. Again, through our website. Just if you're not already contacted Michael, just let, drop us a note. Yep, and if you've got any obscure information, get in. So, thank you guys for your time, and. On behalf of the club, everyone have a good festive season, Christmas and New Year, and hopefully the rest of this season is a memorable one. We'll have a trophy at the end, which will be nice. So thank you both. Thank you.